Hello and welcome to this, the 44th episode in the second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader and chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And this second series is brought to you thanks to the very generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, it is thanks to that support that we're able to bring you these conversations each week absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we won't ever charge for the podcast, but we are looking for you to support Irish theatre, to put your money where your mouth is, and put your money into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote, and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And the simplest way for you to go and do that is to go and buy yourself some tickets. There are a huge amount of theatre shows going on at the moment between the Fringe Festival in Dublin, the Theatre Festival coming up, and indeed around the country. There's a huge amount of work going on at the moment. There has never been more of an opportunity to get out there and sample a wide variety of work. Take a chance, get out there, buy yourself a ticket, you will have a great time. But if you find that this week or this month maybe tickets are slightly outside your reach, maybe go on over to one of the crowdsourcing websites, uh, the fundit.ie's, the Indiegogo, see is there a theatre project over there looking for support, put your hand in your pocket, see if you can help them on their road. Donations often start from as low as a fiver and there are always great rewards in return for those donations. But there are indeed many ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person, over a cup of coffee or over a pint or as you're standing in the foyer of a fringe show waiting to go in or maybe standing some off-site site-specific place waiting to go in and see a show tell people about this podcast the more you can get the word out about us the more we can get the word out about the artists that we have on here uh, for these conversations. You know, maybe share the link as a Facebook post, retweet it on Twitter, Snapchat it on Snapchat, do a filtered picture on Instagram and get it out there. Get the word out there. Use those social media channels to get it out there. Do please subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. Uh, But of course, these episodes are available for streaming and direct download at riseproductions.ie. And for you Android folk, it's there on Podbean and Acast and all those other great places. Go back and listen to the other episodes in this second series and indeed in the first series. Bump them up in the chart position, why not? Leave us a review on iTunes if you have a minute or if you don't have a minute, you've only got a second. Simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system. And as ever, you can follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And it's been another busy enough week here at Rise Towers. We had kicking all the boxes from the great Liz Fitzgibbon down at Electric Picnic over the weekend, which played to an instant standing ovation. They really lapped it up down there, full house at the theatre tent, which is great. Great for Liz to have the show back on the road again. We've got a few more summer festivals coming up over the coming weeks as well. And just nice to have that show that I'm really proud of out on the road. I think Liz does a fantastic job, both in the writing of it and in the performing of it. Um, you know, collaborating with someone of the calibre of Michael Murphy is all always going to be you know a happy situation and Liz and Michael work so well together that they just really bounce off each other create all this incredible stuff I step into direct everybody wins and it's all happy but also kind of a little bit of calm before the storm here as I'm getting prepped to get into the serious end of the judging for the Fringe Festival I've got a huge amount of shows on my plate I think I'm pretty much getting to see almost everything I really wanted to see it's tricky just with the schedules being as hectic as they are it's 77 shows so even if you wanted to you couldn't get to see everything but I think I'm going to get about a third 
third of the shows. Uh, so I'm pretty proud of that. Really looking forward to throwing myself into it. Uh, looking forward to some surprises, seeing shows that, you know, take me by surprise, take me off guard and go, wow, an interpretive dance piece about this. I didn't think I'd be into that. And now it's great. Or whatever it's going to be. Really looking forward to getting stuck into that. And so that brings us to our guest this week, who, speaking of Fringe, is none other than the brilliant Fanula Gigax, uh, an artist of immense talent uh, who I'm really excited about on the scene over the last couple of years. I think she's brilliant. I love her approach to the work. I love her attitude. She is so super smart um, and just a really good person to be around as well as a really considerate and thoughtful and excellent artist. So look, let's get straight into it. Here she is, the brilliant Fanula Gigax. The wonderful Fanula Gigax joining me on the podcast. Hello, my friend. Hello. Um, given that you, I walk around with a name like Angus Og McAnally all the yes. time and the crack that that provides, how much fun is it having your name? It is non-stop crack. It's constant crack. Every new person I meet, it's the opener. It, it's never awkward because if there's nothing to talk about, it's just the go-to. <laughs> but it's always, yeah, it's always the first thing that I explain or that people ask about. Is there a cool story behind it? Like, not that cool. Like, Switzerland's involved. I okay, wish it was a cooler. Cool. Yeah, I wish it was a cooler country. But um, my great granddad was Swiss, so I get the cool name. But it could be a cooler place. Switzerland's meant to be a bit boring. Is it? What are they? Oh, they got chocolate, though, don't they? Chocolate, yeah. I was there a few months ago for the first time, and it's pretty boring. It's cool, though. <laughs> I was at a festival. I love it. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. Right, let's start as we start every week because it's worked well so far. Um, take me back to the very beginning. What is the first impulse or kind of draw towards theatre for you? Um, I suppose if I'm really honest, I like as a child, I was very kind of feral and wild and imaginative. It's hard to imagine now. It, it, it doesn't. It doesn't work at all. I can't believe it. But no, as a, like as young as I can remember, I was always outdoors, I was always um, different characters. I used to pretend to be a monkey. I didn't like being a human and I'd get everyone to call me monkey and go around the school called Monkey G. Um, <laughs> That's pretty special. I'd also write books based on Monkey G and... Uh, is it like the adventures of Monkey G? Yeah, myself and my friend who was Monkey B. But yeah, I was just always very, very imaginative um, as a kid and I loved making stuff and painting and art and, and writing. I've always loved stories and then that grew into like a little bit later when I was like eight or nine then I remember I wrote my first play which is hilarious because I don't think I'd seen a play but I'd probably seen them on tv and I wrote a play and um you know did it with my friends and stuff but my mum put me in drama class when I was eight or nine because I was very very shy even though I was really wild I had another very kind of introverted side and I was put in drama class and I loved it. I absolutely adored every minute of it. And even now, I, I still really, really remember the atmosphere of, of doing that first Christmas show. And I had one line. I still remember my line. And, um, <laughs> but just remembering the, the mirrors on the lights in the dressing room. It was in the old um, the Guinness, the Albert Guinness Theatre, yes. which is now, it, it hasn't been open for years, but, which is a shame because it was the Abbey when the Abbey burnt down. So okay. it was the National Maybe I got to put that in the CV. National Theatre. But um, no, I just remembered like, the smells and the atmosphere and loving it. And when I was in third class, I did a stupid show that my teacher wrote. And the next day, he took me out of class and said, you're going to be an actor. And I went, yeah. And then that was just it. And I have all these diaries because I keep a diary where I've written down 
you know, what's your job going to be about actor and writer, which is hilarious. Really? And yeah, yeah. And I just never shifted from that. I always had lots of other interests, but it was always the one at the core I sort of knew would trump any other interest. I was very involved in sport um, and I, I liked a lot of things, but it was always the one that was, it was just a given. It was just something that I knew that was what I was going to do or I hoped. And uh, when I got to fourth year, it became evident that my passion was a little bit more than like the average human in fourth year who don't care. I took the fourth year musical very seriously. <laughs> I thought like this was my moment. Um, I was Sandy in Greece. Amazing. Yeah. But, um, but it was uh, even at that time, I, I was going through a hard time in my personal life at that time. And I just remember that the joy of going to rehearsals trumped everything. It didn't matter what was going on in my personal life because I loved the rehearsals so much and I never wanted to leave. Everyone else wanted to leave and I just never did. And um, I joined youth theatre then when I was in fifth year. Um, I did YTC, which is in the Gator School of Acting. It's okay. where I met one of my good friends, Kate Gilmore. Uh, yes, and um, we did that together for a term. But with there, I kind of, up until then, it kind of been musicals and stuff. And then I kind of got into theatre and the idea of devising kind of started there too. Okay. I just remember that uh, the, the word devising being thrown around that room a lot and that being something that I was naturally drawn to, like the kind of making of it. And at the time, like we did a show in the project that was definitely written, but I remember the word devising as if we'd all made it, we hadn't, but, <laughs> um, but that kind of thing. And then it was just, I, in sixth year, I applied for drama schools and I didn't get in. I knew I wanted to, I wanted to act and I didn't get in, which was so difficult because at that time you just think everything up until then had been quite easy. I didn't like in school and stuff, I'd always been grand. I didn't, you know, didn't have to massively worry and then suddenly then I was like all I'm going to do is go to drama school and then I didn't get in and I was like oh right like well what there was no plan b in my head yeah um but I got into drama theatre studies which was you know a plan a minus you know and ended up you know being very good for me because you do a mix of writing devising and some acting but you do a lot of acting outside of the course so yeah, and then I graduated three years ago and have been. So this is the, the academic drama course in yeah. Trinity, am I yeah. right? Um, th- so in terms of how broad a spectrum of stuff you're covering with that, did you feel that it was a good fit for you in terms of it's exposing you to obviously the academic end of things, a bit of directing, maybe some design stuff, and that you have enough avenues for acting alongside it? Initially, no. Initially, I was very uncomfortable because it is very academic and even though I was academic I was very intimidated by Trinity I didn't think I was smart enough really yeah yeah I was very self-doubting I'd say for my first two years I was pretty uncomfortable and I just thought I wasn't smart enough and I just wanted to be doing practical things and so we're doing very heavy um academic work which now like it's you know it's it's been brilliant in my work I'm delighted that I studied performance art and women in theatre and all this stuff it's I, I value it but at the time I was like this is not for me so much so that I nearly was going to drop out in second year and just go no no I'm not doing it and and go and try and train again because it just didn't feel right for me and I felt like why am I doing 
these subjects that I don't, I'm not interested in because surely this is what I'm meant to be interested in. But then come, we did the second year show in, uh, in second year <laughs> and I worked with Brian Burroughs and Sarah Terrible Jane. human being. Hate it's a him. bad man. He's such a dick. I know. Such a horrible person. But met him and got into, that was the first time kind of doing movement stuff. Okay. And worked with Sarah Jane Scaife, who I got on really well with. And so that was a, a kind of little golden nugget of second year that kind of kept me like, oh no, this is, this is great. And then third and fourth year, especially fourth year was brilliant because you've, you've, um, you've narrowed down your choices in the course so um, tightly that you are basically doing what you want. So yeah. I majored in, I did adva- three advanced subjects, which means you have to have done those modules all the way along. You're not really meant to do three, but I made them let me. <laughs> um, but I did acting, devising and playwriting as okay. my three kind of main things. And then I did women in theater and Citic, which is going to see plays. And I wrote my dissertation on a pan pan show. So I kind of molded fourth year around myself and I did tons of acting outside of the course. But then alongside the course, to answer your question again, it also served me because um, all the way along, I did like different, I interned with, I interned at Pampan um, right before going to college and worked with them kind of throughout college. I did a lot of assistant directing just to sit in rooms and to learn. Um, Again, I kind of knew that I wanted to perform and and to make, but um, rather than direct, but I did, I got to know, so when I came out of college, I didn't feel like I don't know anyone. I felt like I kind of know people. Now it, it still takes ages to sure. actually, I still don't feel, <laughs> you know, that I'm in any kind of a place. I'm very, actually very grateful to be on this. But, um, but yeah, I kind of knew that it was going to be a hard course to come out of if I didn't do all this groundwork during sure. my time in the there. way that the Gilmores of the world would have had their big showcase at the end and yeah. you arrive on the scene yeah okay. yeah exactly so I tried to kind of make go to the theatre all the time I spent my whole time going to the theatre and I worked really hard I probably could have had a bit more crack in college <laughs> I worked really hard but um, it was great like I, I, I loved my final year it was brilliant very enriching yeah it's an interesting one I mean I, it's, I look back on it now having done you know the old acting course in Trinity and part of me now wishes that we did have more of the academic elements yeah. and stuff. but then I guess at the time I, would have, I wouldn't have been into it I, I know this it's, a, it's a tough one because at the time I was like we begged we were like can we just have an extra movement class week can we have this and it was like no because that's the Lear and that's not here and I was yeah. going but you, you know you kind of want a balance um, so I would have loved more practical all the way along, 100%, especially acting. But I did get it outside. We got to a lot of shows in the Beckett. So by the time I got to the end of my fourth year, I felt quite... I'd done three shows in the Beckett that year. And I directed a show in the Beckett that year as well that I was very proud of. But it, like, because we were performing the Beckett so much, which is such a big theatre, that you actually got quite comfortable with being on stage. Yeah. And... And the idea of playing to a big space, because that is a big, a big space. Big and room. that was sort of our, you know, our place where we performed. So I think that was a good foundation. Now, it's all slap and dash and, you, you know, there's no one giving you the technique, but you're learning through doing, by doing all those plays. Here's a question that you can't answer, uh, so I'll ask it. Um, as you look back on it now, do you think that if you had gone straight into one of the drama schools that yeah. you kind of intended on, that because maybe the devising and the creating end of it wouldn't have been as nurtured 
that you'd be a different artist now because of it? Totally. And how do you feel about that? Totally. So I've kind of an uh, interesting segue with this question, but definitely I'm so, so glad I didn't go after school because I thought that I was confident and knew myself after school because school had been pretty relatively easy for me. I hadn't had a tough time in school. I fit in, it was fine. But when I went to college then, that was like other people's school. I was like, it was a total shift in maturity, experience. You think you know yourself and you're like, wait, what? I was so close-minded before. Um, I was really in a little bubble and there's no way I would have been in any way in a good shape to go to the Lear. Now maybe, or, or the, sorry, any of the drama schools. But then I did have, um, so when I, I auditioned for drama schools again when I was in fourth year and I actually did get into the Lear. When I, yeah, so. Really? Yeah, so when I, in my fourth year, so that was the plan. And that's all that I wanted all through my time in Trinity I was like well I'm gonna go and train after because there are a few people who've gone that route and the Rachel O'Varns oh, the world totally. Venetia as well did that route as well, yeah yeah you? it's all I wanted so I'm a weird human that sometimes I don't it's happened to me a few times in my life I can just have to feel like it's an instinct um but I don't know what it is but I suddenly I got in and for maybe a month I was like yes and then I got Epic, which was the TV show that I did out of college. And I could have done both. So that wasn't an issue. Actually, it would have made going to the Lear much easier because I would have paid <laughs> and been able to pay for it. But I'd massive amount of, and still do huge respect for the Lear and all the actors that come out of there. Loads of them are my friends. But I just had this 180 shift and I went, it's actually not for me. I'm not going to go. And, and there was people, I like had so many conversations. I tore my hair out about it still half tearing my hair uh, out about it wondering what could have been what would have been but I have to just trust that the route that I took was suitable for me and the artist that I am have you any idea can you pinpoint what the impulse was like you said I haven't spent four years going well this is the plan this is what I'm going to do this is my destiny and then getting it yeah and going it's not even that you didn't get and go well that's what I never wanted anyway it's like here it is on a plate going no I don't want it can you can you pinpoint what that is it's really bizarre um a few feelings one being I was working that whole summer and all through college like I'd said I'd been sitting in rooms and in rehearsals and all I wanted to do is to be working all that time and not to be a student because when you're a student people do no matter what you're doing no matter what role you are you are a student sure and there was a little bit of me that was kind of going you know what I I actually want to just be an equal now and and to be and to be out working and doing things another thing was out of insecurity and going I kind of felt like what if I do the three years, and even though it'd be, I know I would have adored it, I would have been fanatical about it. And if I come out and I don't get agents and I don't get jobs and I don't want to feel any resentment, I want to feel like I've, I've kind of taken my career in my own hands a bit yeah. and gone, well, if, if it all goes to shit, it's my responsibility yeah. a little bit. So it's a little bit about control and going... I want to take control of this and just and just try it and and not have someone decide what showcase or if I'm pretty enough or if I'm young enough and yeah. it's a little bit of that and out of fear but 
I don't, it was just more a guttural, a gut reaction at the time and there would have been pluses and minuses and I still, when I'm feeling very insecure, it's my biggest regret. Of <laughs> and when I'm, you know, right now I'm very happy and I'm like, and I, I've got to do other brilliant things and work with people that I'm like, no, I, I think when, if I'm really being honest, it was right for me and the yeah. artist that I am. Well, listen, seven years of drama school is an awful lot of yeah, drama yeah, yeah. school. <laughs> that would have been, like, that's not nothing. Yeah. Um, if that had happened, would you have been coming out then? No. Just now? Yeah. Wow, that's kind yeah. of wild. Um, we started talking about telly. Let's talk about telly. Yeah. Bring me back to Epic and how it came about and what an experience that was. Yeah, it was probably the, the most special, it was the most special experience that I've had on a job because... Um, you know, all through college, you're kind of doing all the different things, but you know, you really want to be considered an actor. You want there's one thing that you really want people to think you are. And when I got the job on Epic, that was kind of the first time that I could say, really honestly, I'm an actor because I'm getting paid to do it for this amount of time. Yeah, and a big proper leading role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, um, one of these ones was my final week in college, or one of my final weeks, and there was an open call for this TV show. And I presumed I was too old. I was like, there's no way they'll go for me. They're meant to be 17, and I was 21 or something. Ancient at 21. Yeah, <laughs> past it. But in my head, it was one of those ones I was like, oh, I probably wouldn't even bother. And then I was like, oh, I'll just send it in in case. And then sent in. And I just had no... I never thought the TV would want me. <laughs> um, I thought, like, I'll do theatre if I do anything. I won't do TV. And... Um, and auditioned, and I remember after the first audition, kind of having that feeling because Louise Nienach, the, the director, she really suited the sort of actor that I was. Her, in the audition, it was very, um, very collaborative, and she got us up, we were, we were improvising sure. loads, so it wasn't going, stand there, stand still, say the lines perfectly. It was, we're gonna improv, play a few improv things, which I love, and then you do the scene. Sure. And it was funny because they sent me two roles, and I was like, okay, well, I definitely would never be cast as that one. So I'm sure I'll be. Ca- if I was going to be anyone, I'd be the other one, which is like this meek, like goth <laughs> character that I just presumed. And the other one, I was like, I'd never be her. She's over the top, and she's blonde, and she's blonde. Anyway, of course, I was cast as her. <laughs> so I did a callback, and um, and I had a good feeling. I kind of had. It was one of those ones that I was like, actually. You're, ne- you're never certain, but I was like, I have a good feeling about, about this. And yeah, I got cast and it was amazing. My, one of my best friends, Fionn Foley, uh, was also cast just by chance. And we, you know, we were best friends in college and we shot, we did eight weeks in Galway for the whole summer. And they treated us so great. And so they brought us down for two weeks before uh, we did uh, to train us on camera and to do rehearsals, which just never happens. And I did, I barely done any camera since, but I did do a small thing on camera last week and I found like, oh, like, I know what I'm doing because they taught me. They went through everything, like A to Z, these are the, this is the language we use, this is the terms, this is this, this is your mark, all that stuff. Um, but it was the best fun because it was everything I would want. It was comedy, there was music in it, we did music videos. I was playing like an outrageous character, which I love. And me and the lads, we just got on so well. We lived in this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere that was so boring for eight weeks. <laughs> and just had like, I think I look back and like, that was the epitome of my youth. You yeah. know, it was just one of those, maybe your first Guelph talk or something, but just going, everything about it was special. The team, the crew, getting up every morning, it was just the biggest dream. I 
wasn't over it I'd say for a year I cried at every single phase I bawled my eyes out as they were filmed we hadn't even finished filming the last scene the camera had moved to someone else's character and me selfishly couldn't keep it together it's meant to be a comedy so he's pulled he says like a punchline and it's all funny and in the background I'm hysterical because I can't cope with it being over so and like was hysterically crying hysterically crying when we left uh, Woodford hysterically crying when the the night before the first episode came out when my every stage of the way I bawled I was so emotionally attached to it because we had a lot of input into the characters yeah. as well and you know and yeah it was just a dream it's interesting because I you know they talk about stuff that you make for screen that you, as an actor you have very little control over it. yeah um whereas now when you're making work for theatre you tend to I mean obviously when you're writing and performing and you go to, or directing or whatever you have a reasonable amount of control over totally. that so I'm I'm intrigued that it was such a positive experience when you know just in that role is there something freeing about not having to worry about any of the other elements that yes. you go all I gotta do is just gotta go and act yes yeah. yes 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 100% I love a mix of the both but I'm actually surprisingly to people I don't like being the one in control okay. I don't like being at the forefront of a thing on my own because I take, I, I find responsibility, it, it, I find it a bit oppressive. Okay. <laughs> so I actually love divvying out and, and with Epic, because you still felt, I didn't feel like I was a puppet in the way that people talk about TV. You know, there was still a lot of freedom within it, but it was lovely going, I don't need to worry about the script. I don't need to worry about all these things. I trust everyone else is doing their yeah. thing. And I just do the simple thing of saying the lines and trying to be like good yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. try and not be try shit. Try not possible. be shit as much as you can. So yeah, I I love a mix of of, of both of that. Yeah, uh, I want to talk about Hostel Sixteen because uh, it's a show I really loved, and it, as it, the the word I I never use this word about theatre because I think if you do you're a dick, yeah. but I think it was a really important show. Um. And I'd love to talk a bit about where it came from, mm-hmm. why why you felt that was a story and a show you needed to make, and just kind of how it came about. Yeah. Um, so it started off as, well, I'll rewind a little bit. So remember I said I had these gut reactions and I changed things at the last minute. Uh, that happened to me. I was doing playwriting and I thought that I was really bad at playwriting. I didn't think I was in any way a good writer, and I'm still a bit skeptical about it. But anyway, and um, I was writing this play for my playwriting class about a family, and it was just, I was so bored writing it, I thought it was shit. And I was coming in every week just saying to the teacher, this is terrible, I don't think it's good, I don't like it. And she was like, no, 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 stick with it, stick with it. And we were meant to write a play over a term, and like the term is like 10 weeks, and it got to week eight. <laughs> So, like, your play should be finished. And I declared in the class, I was like, I'm putting that play in the bin. I'm not writing anymore. I'm going to start again. And she was like, what are you going to write about? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) I'm just going to trust that it's the right thing. Again, my gut is telling me this isn't the right play, the other one. I don't know why I'm writing it. And I said, I was like, I wouldn't be excited seeing this play, the other one. I can't even remember what it was. was, Anyway, that says it all. (laughs) So, anyway, I I threw that in the bin. So, I had nothing. Uh, Graham Wybrook came in to talk to our class and everyone read sections of their play, got to me, I was the last person, and I said, uh, well, I'm the, the, the rebel or the dunce of the class, I don't have anything yet. And he went, okay, okay, well, you know, just keep going. And uh, I ended up 
well, subsequently doing with the Hospital 16 was nominated for Stuart Parker and I ended up doing the workshop with Graeme so I told him this story but I had nothing and there was like three weeks to go to write the play and I had not a word, not an idea and then I was at home one day and an interview came on the radio of a woman who was talking about living in direct provision I'd heard about it before direct provision and but I just listened to the interview and I thought like I didn't know that much about it, but what she was talking about, there was a lot of trauma and, and, and living in the hostel and not getting a home. And the, the theme of home, I've kind of moved on from now, but at the time was quite tenuous with me. I just found out my family home was being sold um, and I was devastated and had this huge emotional reaction to that. So I kind of thought it would be something to do with our relationships with home. Yeah and to physical spaces was the sort of initial impulse but then so it did somewhat come from a a personal place of an understanding of feeling displaced yeah and then I heard this interview on the radio and uh, and um and I was like I actually need to find out more about that so I started researching researching loads and was just horrified by what I was reading, the conditions that people were living in and children and families, children mainly, and um, just everything about it. It was just incredibly grim and how many of them there were around the country. And I knew, I was like, I'm pretty liberal and, and I you know, keep up the news and I don't have a clue what's going on yeah. here. So I'm sure a lot of other people don't. So I just started writing and I wrote two scenes which ended up being in the play, one with the children, two children living in direct provision and then another one with the kind of um, the mentally unstable man and uh, trying to seduce another woman in the hostel because in these hostels people from all different cultures are living together and forced into these rooms, these situations, people who are mentally unstable. So I wrote two scenes, went into my playwriting class terrified and went, I've written this and read them out and I remember at the time people were a little bit like, oh, like why, are you write, like, why are you writing about that? I remember one person saying, you need to be very careful about that. And I'm, ter- I'm, I'm not great with confrontation. So I'm, oh, God, yeah, I shouldn't write it, shouldn't write it. And the teacher went, no, write it, keep writing. And so the, the idea behind you shouldn't be writing that is in that it's not your story yeah. to tell. You don't have the right to adopt that voice, maybe? Yeah, that was the kind of, they said you should be very careful if you're going to try and take on that voice. So I just, she told me to keep writing. I had a deadline in three weeks. <laughs> so I wrote the play and I was so embarrassed um, handing it to Trinity. I was like, this is shocking. I remember handing it in, being mortified and just, just so full of self-doubt. And then when I got it back, I got a very nice response. And from then it kind of grew. So I got a residency with Druid to develop it for a week. Wow. Yeah, and uh, Fuel. So did that and developed it, and Danielle Galligan was part of that, and uh, Raymond Keane came to see that. Then I was invited to perform it at another festival that Una Murphy and Maeve Stone were running yeah. for a mix. It was a, a night in the Axis for people in direct provision and artists. So we performed a little bit. That was terrifying because in Druid, as terrifying as that was, we weren't performing for people in direct provision, but this actually was. And we had a panel discussion. I like the fear. I've never felt anything like it. But they were so positive. So from then, applied for Fringe and put in for the Fringe. Got Raymond on board and uh, put it on. Yeah. So eleven in the cast who were all <laughs> brilliant. Like when I look back, like it was only two years ago. But the cast are just 
out of this world and it, yeah it was a really special time and I wish at the t- I could have enjoyed it more because yeah. I was so stressed maybe, maybe don't put on a fringe show with 11 people in it then yeah I know <laughs> but I was so stressed because I just thought I, I knew my intention was was pure but yeah. I thought like well what if other people don't think my intention's pure and they think that I'm jumping on a hot topic well here's the thing and I'd love to chat to you about it because straight up I don't think if you tried to put that show on essentially anywhere outside of Dublin like I don't I think if you tried to put that on in London you would have been shut down mm. the idea of having an all white cast yeah. tackling that show yeah. I think people would have jumped to conclusions yeah. and said this isn't your story to tell um, you know this is tantamount to blackface and we're shutting it down and you would have lost this incredibly powerful theatrical experience and it kind of for my money as just an audience member coming and engaging with the work that was the whole fucking point. Yeah. Because, as you said, like you're relatively well connected, you're well, relatively well tuned into what's yeah. going on in the world, and we don't know what's going on in those places no. because they're being as othered as possible. Totally. And I asked around, I thought maybe I'm ignorant. I asked so many people, and no one knew what it was. And every time I'd mention the word, you could just see a glaze over people's eyes, not wanting to admit that they didn't know what it was. And then. And I thought, like, so there was a big, myself and Raymond, like, God, there was a few dark weeks where we got, went, how are we going to do this? Who can, who can we cast to tell it? And then there was a moment one day we were sitting in the IFI depressed. I was like, my, like, no one's even going to look at me in the face. And at this time we were casting. Um, we put out, like, an open call so anyone could come. But, like, we live in Ireland, so, like, most people were white, yeah. you know? It wasn't diverse and we didn't have funding, so we weren't paying anyone. So it was young actors. Yeah, you, weren't, you weren't flying over to London for no, the casting. No, no. And had it been London, it would have been a totally different show, but it couldn't have happened because yeah. it wasn't a verbatim piece. Hmm. So I wasn't telling the story. I was telling an imagined version. And then when we sat in IFI that day, I remember us just sitting there and the grimness and just stirring tea going, we couldn't think of anything. And I just said, well, what if we just used our own names? rather than character names yeah. because then we're forcing the audience to look at it Irish people for the majority watching Irish people and seeing yourself in that situation so point. you're looking at the situation or, and the conditions rather than the, the, real, the real version and it was never so we're quite careful in how we pitched it um, you know or talked about it it was, it was amazing as an experience to have to really like tweak what language you use mm. one word and you've 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 fucked the whole show because it had to be it's an imagined version yeah. of we're look you know that's what the show was and but god like the, the, the first night of that show like i think the whole cast knew like just not even to talk to me because i have never been so sick and and just going this is the end now it was been a lovely run in irish theater but it's it's <laughs> over and I remember then we got a standing ovation on the first night and just the pure relief of just going, it works. And it not maybe it doesn't work for everyone, but it works for a lot of people. And we'd leave the theatre and people would stay around outside and people from Direct Provision did come and we all kind of got involved. Like we, we went to rallies and we all donated our profit share to the to Massey who really? are ending, yeah, who are, they fight to drown end direct provision so like there was there was a lot of things under the behind the scenes that were happening too rather than just 
just the play but um yeah it was a scary time but I'm I'm now now that I'm a little bit older and a bit more confident in my decisions I I'm look I look back I'm like actually I I think that what like the we we followed through with our intention we wanted to let people know that this was happening this is what direct vision is like and I think hopefully it did that <laughs> hopefully no, I, think, I think it was great I mean I, I genuinely think the power of it was that we got to see ourselves up there yeah and it's suddenly that kind of as kind of crude as it sounds that kind of magical moment where you, the light bulb goes up and you go hang on a second they're humans too yeah this is we can't treat them like this yeah but, I, but there is that thing where it's for I think it suits us at the moment to just brush that under the carpet, totally. like we did with many other kind of oh, well, that institutions was a big, over the years. That was a big because I like that is another theme that I'd looked at. The piece that I devised in my final year in college, which I directed, was looking at the Catholic Church and the influence of the Catholic Church in Ireland, and it was just that cyclical, repetitious thing in Ireland of the same um, ill treatment of people, of groups of people, yeah. and and shying them away and not talking about things. So that was definitely. Yeah, something that was in my brain at the time. Um, I want to talk to you about the kind of landscape at the moment Mm -hmm. for younger theatre artists. Yeah. Uh, In terms of you're out a couple of years now making waves, making work, um, and the kind of the support structures that are around there. And kind of two things in particular to touch on are... Uh, the next stage, yep. which is something that I did, which I really enjoyed, um, and then also the next generation bursary as well. I'd like to talk about and how you feel these are setting up you and your in your own practice, yep. and I guess as a support structure for people breaking the business generally. Sure, um, I'll start with the next generation because it's kind of just finished, so it's I got it around this time last year, sure, and it lasts for a year, and it has been remarkably instrumental in how I view myself as an artist in the year that I've been allowed to have because they give you quite a decent sum of money um it's absolutely nuts like I remember I got an email last summer from Emer and Driach asking me or saying if I wa- if I was going to put in for that that they she would support me um, so that kind of got me thinking, I was, God, will I, will I, won't I? And asked a few people and people were like, yeah, do it, do it. So I put in for it and like, it's mammoth, like it's a mammoth application and God, the self-doubt of rampant of like, as you have to email people, it's mortifying people you've worked with and go, would you write me a letter of support? And Tell I, me I'm deadly on paper, please. I nearly, genuine, at the start, I nearly just pulled out of it because I was like, I can't, I was so... I was like, why would anyone write me a letter? I was horrified and I hated it. I'm even nervous thinking about it. And um, Maeve Stone actually at the time was like, you're doing it. Put it in. You're doing it. You have to. And I went, right, I have to. And I sent off, I sent off a few emails. I sent the nice ones, like the easy people first who I knew... And, but then by the time one of them had written back, I was like, well, I have to do it now because I've written a letter. Yeah. So I have to put in for it. So I put in for it. And um, again, I think it's a bloody miracle. Like, it's a miracle for me that I got it. And I know, like, people were, were asking me advice. And this year I was helping a few different people with the, the form. And I know, like, a lot of those people didn't get it this year. And I'm just thinking, God, how lucky was I last year to have gotten it. But so you get a bursary for the year, it's towards mentorship and courses and your development as an artist. So you kind of have to be, I decided to just be very honest. I knew at the time, because it was around the time of Hospital 16, 
And Stuart Parker, I was like, I could totally pitch this writing thing, but that's not what I want to do. Like, I could pitch that, oh, I've just written a play and I'll spend it writing plays. Yeah. And it's exactly not what I want to do. I want to be, I'm a performer, so that's one half. And then the other side is theatre making, devising, collaboratively making work and writing within that. So I kind of, I thought that might be a bit vague. I thought it wasn't specific enough to do the two, you know. But I did, that's exactly what I pitched. And I said, I want to make work and I want for adults and children. And I want to make work that's examining, that was my main pitch of examining form. Because that's what I'm interested I'm interested in experimenting with all different types of ways of making work. And I named different courses that I would do and um, how I hoped that would progress me as an artist and everything. And I got it. So I've just, like, to be honest, this year has just been the best because first of all it just gives you such confidence you're like well people believe you enough to that if they say i'm a real artist then i must yeah, be a real artist yeah and and as well like i'm not into money whatsoever but to just have a bit of financial comfort it just it allows you to do so much more not to be worrying can you pay your rent like it's a huge thing i didn't have to worry for most of the year can i pay my rent you know, I could focus on writing. I could, my mind was much freer to think creatively. Like we set up the company this year. I don't think that would have happened. Lots of things. And I just don't know if I would have had the confidence to do a lot of things. I went to Paris and trained for two months, which was like my actor training, yeah. you know, and um, just all that stuff. So I couldn't recommend it enough. It's, it's phenomenal. I, it also affords me to do things like the next stage. So the next stage I did last year, which is run by the Dublin Theatre Festival, where you see all the shows, it's like a marathon. It's quite an undertaking. I absolutely adored it. I got really jealous uh, a few weeks ago and they put out the call, like genuinely. Like, Knowing that you couldn't go again. It took me like half an hour to retweet the tweet. Like, I was like, I'm not over this, but I get very attached. It's like when you see someone with an ex, you're going, oh, no, I know we've moved on yeah, and I know. we agreed this, but I didn't expect you to no. flaunt it in my face. But I was messaging, because we're all still really close. Like, I became brilliant friends with loads of them. Like, Claire Monley is one of, one of my closest friends now from the next stage. Yeah. And just brilliant people. And you're so immersed in theatre. It's really informed the sort of work that I want to make because you go and you have an impulse you're like not for me and you can look at things objectively and go great not what I would either want to be in or to be making yeah amazing would love to be in that the writing's great in that you know you really can analyze work um and look at like Irish work compared to international work I'm mad about international work and it's just an opportunity to immerse in that which you don't get throughout the year because we don't have the funding to bring over the big shows like I was in Paris for the three months or two and a half months and it's just amazing over there because obviously they have so much more funding but just these massive names who are just casually there in November casually there in December if we have it it's one little pocket of the year and it's one big show yeah there it's every week you're seeing brilliant stuff but here it's just it's amazing it's incredible tiring but I I didn't even find that tiring because I was just having so much crack do you feel that it's a good time to be trying to crack into the business at this stage does it feel like it's hard to get a foot on the ladder for um I think like I it depends on on the sort of artist you are I think the acting is hard because there's new people coming out of both drama schools and, and DIT as well. Like every year, agencies are so full. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of the theatres are doing reruns of stuff. There isn't that much casting. Um, so I think that if just doing that, I think is very difficult unless you're very lucky, very talented, or it just works. Yeah. So I think even making stuff, like there are only like one big opportunity a year, which is Fringe, to showcase work. But I think, I think it is quite difficult. I actually do think it's quite difficult. Um, and just to keep in it when you're not doing it all and, and to stay involved like the good thing about it is it's a small industry so you know everyone but that can be a bit tough as well yeah. because you're seeing everyone else doing things or talking about things um so yeah i actually do think it's, it's quite hard but i think there are certain opportunities like fringe and collaborations as well um but if you're not making your own work i just don't know how people are keeping sane yeah to be honest like i Thankfully, like I enjoy doing it as well. I enjoy making, but I, I, there'd be so much of the year that I would be doing nothing if I wasn't making. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And speaking of making work, uh, you now have a brand new company yeah. for the purposes of making work. Talk to us about Chaos Factory. Chaos Factory, yeah. So, Chaos Factory is a new company um, founded by myself. Uh, Venetia Bow, Danielle Galligan, and Rachel Bergen. So Rachel is our company producer, and myself. Venetia, That's a pretty formidable lineup, it has to be said. Yeah, oh, it's, it's a good it's gang. Bloody amazing! It's amazing as well because I'm a massive self-doubter. So when I'm doubting the thing, but I don't have doubts in them. Yeah, of course. So I'm like, oh, but if they say it's good, it's good. <laughs> then it's 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 fine. It's if we're all saying something shit, then I'm like, okay. But uh, yeah, so um, so around uh, it was January, December two thousand sixteen. So actually, quite a long time ago. Danny was like, "Oh, I think I'd love to make another show because she'd been in Hostel sixteen. And we started talking like, "What would we make a show about?" I was allergic to the idea of having a company. Uh, people used to say it to me for the past three years since I left college. People would say to me, "Oh, when are you going to set up a company?" And I would shut it down like no one's business. I was like, "Never making a company." Never doing it. Wow. I was really certain about that. Um, but I think it was definitely denial. But I think I, I needed to feel like I could establish myself a li- as myself and what I wanted to do a little bit more before doing a company thing. Yeah. And need to know like what sort of work do I want to make. I didn't want to jump into a company and I didn't want to jump in with anyone. Mm. It had to be the right time, the right people. And so we started chatting Sorry, myself and uh, Danielle. Then I happened to go on holiday with Venetia a few weeks later and was telling her about the idea to make a show. And she said, I'd love to... We wanted to do it about women. It was going to be about missing women at the time. And we emailed Louise Lowe, Bold as Brass. And Louise Lowe, I just have to say, has been... Like, I, I will never be able to express in words how much she has given us. Because she brought us in January 2017 when we didn't have a clue. We were not thinking about setting up a company. We were like, we want to make a show about missing women. And emailed her being like, "This would you meet with us? Or would, would it be something you'd be interested in? And she brought us in and gave us mentoring sessions for weeks for free. And said, this is what you need to do. You need to set up a company. You need to do this. These are the, all the forms you need to be, or things you need to be applying for. And really, like, um, hammering us, why are you making that? Why would you do that when there's 
more present because we are looking at the, we are looking at like past things she was like there's so much happening now why don't you do this she gave us keys like she gave us space like so we've had a place that we could go for the past year and a half wow um and she just gave us like advice any any questions we had emailed and so i can't I genuinely can't thank her enough. And like no one, well, I was going to say no one will ever know that, but I've just broadcasted to the whole industry. Don't everyone go plaguing Louise now. But um, (laughs) but yeah, she was just absolutely incredible. And But it was only, so the company thing actually only really came about. We we had another name, it was stupid, for like a year. And then when we decided, we're like, we're going to put in for Fringe now. We put in for funding before and got disqualified. And thankfully we did, because that's what this show, Kiss Kiss Slap Slap, was. And it was totally different show and this is the right show okay. for us now but um so we came up with a new name and we said okay well and even still we came up with the name and i still like yeah we're not a real company like <laughs> i just had this real commitment phobic feeling about it and then we said let's launch as a company on social media and and we just got so much like brilliant response and then once we'd done that it was like i really felt like this is 100 percent the right thing yeah it's the right time. It's the right time for all of us. I think it's the right like mix of people. It's the right show. I mean, I'm not saying the show is going to... like. I hope it's going to be really great. I don't want to over-egg it, but it just... It all seemed to like feel right to do it now. And, and yeah, I can't thank Louise enough about it. So we're making a show for The Fringe now. And without giving too much away, can you tell us much about the show? Yep. I can. Well, you're sitting in our, in our room now, which we have from... Uh, so we've had our own space for the past month and we have for two more, which is brilliant. But So the show is called Kiss Kiss Slap Slap and it's an examination of rape culture. Um, it's, so we kind of started off looking at this and it was all... We were reading articles and it was on the news a lot. It was around the time of the Me Too movement. There was a lot of stuff happening, the Belfast rape trial. And... So there was a lot of saturation happening and we knew this is the show we wanted. We wanted to make something about this. But then when all of this stuff was happening, we had this feeling of like we want to turn it on its head a little bit. So we want to examine all of this, but we want to do it in a way that's playful, experimental, more abstract. So we're all more drawn to rather than the literal, a bit more drawn to the abstract and to the weird, okay. weird stuff, physical. So the show is very physical. Um quite inspired by performance art um, and comedy was a big thing we were like we actually wanted to it, it sounds mad so we're making a show about rape culture but we're, we are because we're looking at the culture we're not looking at rape we're looking at the culture around it and it is a joke okay rape culture is a joke it's a joke how um, what women put up with on a daily basis it's hysterical you know <laughs> I'm glad you're saying that <laughs> I say that me. with I say that in a spitting way of like as in, it's so ridiculous mm. of what women have to put up with. And, and I say that with anger, but that the way that we are hoping to approach this is with playfulness and fun. So that you can see, rather than getting shouted at or watching something on the news, that you can observe it in a different way. So nothing you're going to see on stage is going to be the literal representation. But yes, we try to instill kind of a lot of fun and playfulness and experimentation into the show. But it does come from a place of truth and kind of looking at serious subjects and trying to flip them on their head a little bit 
so yeah we'll see how that goes down <laughs> it's fantastic no I'm, I'm intrigued about the whole project I'm dying to see it um, and I'm really looking forward to it and just seeing more work from you I'm delighted to have you on at long last thanks so much um, <laughs> it's been a real privilege I think you're the business oh thank you so much thanks for having me so there you have it the great Vanula Gigax brilliant to catch up with her and get her take on the business particularly for people of her generation at this time I think that's a really interesting conversation and I think where the business is going to go in the coming years is going to be quite an interesting setup I'm, I'm intrigued to see what way it's going to fall out there's little shifts happening in the world of funding little shifts happening in terms of people having more security and more permanence and a bit of better capacity to plan things and I find that intriguing and something tells me we'll be seeing an awful lot more Fanula over the years. So look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of the theatrical goings-on around the country. At the Abbey Theatre, they got Jimmy's Hall and Two Pints out on tour and a whole heap of fringe stuff going on there at the Abbey over the coming weeks. Check out the Abbey's website for details on those fringe shows. At the Gate Theatre, the snapper is completely sold out and that'll be followed by our own Ruthie doing Hamlet for the festival, which is going to be a fantastic show. I am already booked. Looking forward to hanging out with my old pal. At the Gaty Theatre, it's your last chance to catch Riverdance and that'll be followed by Girls and Dolls the debut play from Lisa McGee writer of Derry Girls so if you're a fan of Derry Girls get yourself to the Gaiety Theatre at the O'Reilly Theatre they have Tales of Hoffman from Irish National Opera and that'll be followed by Foil Arms and Hog and then also in a little while uh, Theatre Club are back with Heroin coming in there soon so that's going to be well worth getting along to see it's a new and updated version as far as I know so even if you've seen it before well worth another roll of the dice at the Lear Academy in their theatre spaces there there's again another whole heap of fringe stuff going on up there uh, do go out of your way to check out what's on up at the Lear at the Mermaid Silent from Pat Kinnevin uh, followed by The May by Marina Carr starring like Dervla Crotty and Stella McCusker and Marion O'Dwyer and Rise Productions regular Rachel O'Byrne and a whole heap of other incredibly talented performers um, just a cast to die for and that show's going to be on tour so if it's coming near you and I reckon it will be no matter where you are in the country get yourself out to see uh, the May from the brilliant Marina Carr at the New Theatre again a whole heap of fringe stuff check out the newtheatre.com or fringefest.com for details on those shows there uh, the same at Smock Alley they still have the Diary of Maynard Perdue that's continuing there and you know almost every other fringe show that isn't uh, that isn't elsewhere is happening there um, at the Civic Theatre in Tala they have Looking Deadly and Pilgrim with Rex Ryan at the Pavilion they have the sold out return of Ulysses followed by that Tales of Hoffman production and at Driacht in Blanche they have the May and also My Left Nut uh, returning from its amazing run at the Edinburgh Festival at the Viking in Clontarf they have Dirtbird self-help tour but that's completely sold out now they are taking cancellation lists each morning for that night's show so uh, you can roll the dice on that well worth getting in touch with them to see what the story is there out at the Dolmen it's Phelan Drew in Joxer Daily Esquire which I've only heard incredible things about going to try and make my way over to the Dolmen to catch that if at all possible at Bewley's Cafe Theatre they have your last chance to catch Roman Fever by Hugh Leonard starring the great Karen Ardiff and Ali White and that'll be followed by a load of fringe stuff most notably all the show in a bag shows will be playing there I have tickets for all four of them and very much looking forward to catching them uh, at the Project Arts Centre in Temple Bar look that's basically fringe central between the cube and the space upstairs there's going to be a whole heap of stuff going on there check out the project's website for all the details there or indeed the fringe website website. 
As we head south to the Everyman in Cork, it's Frankie's Guys, and that'll be followed by Looking Deadly, which is out on, ro- on the road at the moment. Uh, at the GB Shaw Visual in Carlo, the Look- Looking Deadly is also playing there. Out west at the Town Hall in Galway, Jimmy's Hall is on tour from the Abbey, and that'll be followed by the man himself, Aaron Monaghan, starring in Druid's production of Richard III. God damn, I can't wait to see Ernie work his magic in that one. Um, out west again, still at the Lime Tree, Bottoms Up, the 10th anniversary celebrations for Bottom Dog theatre company uh, and that's going to be followed by user not found at the hawkswell in sligo three hail marys followed by no smoke without fire from the brilliant mary murray and up north at the lyric in belfast it's good vibrations and i'm hearing incredible things about that production which is no great shock given that everything pretty much that comes out of the lyric is deadly these days so look that is us that is episode 44 in the books would you believe it we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime this has been the rise productions irish theater podcast for angus og mcanally i'm angus og mcanally we'll see you next week 